Technology has massively impacted our lives, and it's bound to change them further. Indeed, from social media to online shopping, it often feels like the world is more a result of the interaction of technological innovation and commercial exploitation as the consequence of human choices through clunky old systems like democracy. But who are the people who changed our world and want to change it even more? Where do they come from? What drives them? What worries them? Want to know more? Keep listening. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by tech journalist Cade Metz, who's author of a book just come out a few days ago called Genius Makers, the mavericks who brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the world. Cade, how are you? I'm well. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I really enjoyed reading the book. So thank you for all the work you put into that. Let's start at the very beginning, because there's a bit of a story here, I think, which is about the way the book has evolved. So I was going to say, well, how did the book come about? But I think what's kind of interesting is that this isn't quite the book you set out to write, is it? It's not. You know, I had actually put together a pitch for a completely different book. And then I was at Wired Magazine in San Francisco at the time and was covering this area of what we call artificial intelligence. And I had just gotten back from Korea where there was this key moment in the evolution of this technology. And I decided to write this book. But eventually, you know, what I settled on as I continued to cover the technology and write stories about it was this thread involving this you know, what I found to be incredibly interesting personality, a guy named Jeff Hinton, who was born in London, eventually made his way to the US and to Canada. We'll come to Jeff in a minute. I want to focus in on Jeff. So yeah, go on. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's where the book begins. It, it begins at this moment where I feel like it had to begin. There is, there's this inflection point in 2012, where the technology really takes off. And Jeff is at the heart of that. And there was this untold story about how this worked. And what fascinated me, and it made it so easy to begin the book there, was that all the big players across the globe whose role in the development and distribution of this technology would be so important over the next decade, they were already there in this one moment involving Jeff Hinton. Yeah, and why the book works so well is that you cram an awful lot of information into it, but it's got this pretty powerful narrative, and it's got these amazing personalities. So what I want to do in the first part of our conversation, Kate, is to pick two or three of those people. And you know, if I'd been your editor or your publisher, I, I like Genius Makers is a nice name for a book. You know what I would have called the book? I would have called it The Man Who Couldn't Sit Down, which of course is part of the Jeff Hinton story. Because if there's one person who features more than anybody else in the story, it is Jeff Hinton, one of whose characteristics is that he can't, he literally can't sit down. So tell us a bit about Jeff. And I think the thing about Jeff that is particularly significant, Cade, is his longevity. He is somebody who's there when AI is looking like it's next big thing. He's the one who keeps going through the AI winter. He's the one whose ideas get rejected. And then he's the one who's there when it all starts to come together again. This is why the title you suggest is so good, right? That it's, he has this back problem that literally 
means he cannot sit down. And that becomes a metaphor, right, for, you're right, his decades of struggle to get this one idea out. You learn in the first sentence of the book that, as he puts it, he has not sat down since 2005. And that's, he means that literally. He had a back problem that developed because of an accident when he was a teenager. He was lifting a space heater for his mother and he slipped a disc. And by his late 50s, the disc would slip so frequently and put him in such pain and really lay him up to the point where he decided the only way to deal with this was to stop sitting down. And that means he can't drive. He can't fly because the commercial airlines make him sit during takeoff and landing. And in the midst of this story, you know, from the very beginning of the book, He's got to make these pilgrimages across North America to try to get this technology to work. And what that means is he's got to take the train and lie down at the back of a bus. And then once he reaches his destination, lie down at the back of a taxi. It's just a fascinating situation, but it it is a larger metaphor for what he went through over the decades. And he's somebody who always has a foot in both camps, doesn't he? That is to say he's an academic, he's an intellectual He is also somebody who goes into Google. He's critical to the commercial application of this technology. He's much older than the kind of people we associate with this AI world. And I sense in a world of pretty enormous egos, he's not as egocentric as we often imagine these figures are. He's a slightly different. There's something British about him, I think. Very British. And you describe him well. And I like that you talk about that contrast between industry and academia, right? He was an academic and he comes from this family of famous British academics and scientists from George Boole, his great, great grandfather, whose mathematical work is essential to the way computers work today, to another uncle whose name was given to the tallest peak on the planet, Mount Everest. Jeff's middle name is Everest after this relative. Another cousin worked on the Manhattan Project during World War II. So he comes from this family of academics. And in the early 70s, he seizes on this one important idea that at the time didn't work and wouldn't work for decades. But then when it finally starts to work around 2010... This is the neural networks, yeah? Yeah, it's called a neural network, and we need to get into that, I think, because this is the fundamental idea that's driving so much of the change now, and this is the idea he believed in for so long. And then when it finally starts to work, he moves into industry, and there were only a few other academics alongside him who believed in this idea, and they were brought in too. And what happened, largely because of Jeff, is that academic sensibility really influenced the way the companies, at least initially, in very pointed and important ways, operated. And that dynamic is fascinating to me, that you can have the sensibilities of one person really change the way an industry works. Yeah, no, he's a larger-in-life character. And the fact that he tragically loses two wives to cancer while he is in the middle of all of this with his kind of disability, he is an absolutely fascinating person. And as I say, different from the kind of stereotype we tend to have of kind of AI entrepreneurs. I'm sure we'll talk about Jeff a bit later when we talk about some of the issues, but let me turn to a second person. Demis 
Hassabis, who some people will know of, who he's spoken at an RSA event in the past, for example, and he's also British. Tell us about Demis. What seems to me really interesting about Demis is that he is, as it were, the visionary. I mean, throughout, he's a very, very big thinker, isn't he? He's a very big thinker and in such an ambitious way. I love the way, and we'll have to compare and contrast Hinton and Demis, right? I love the way Hinton describes Demis and not only his incredible intellect, but also you know, his desire to push his ideas out into the world. At one point when I was talking with Hinton and researching this book, he compared Demis to Robert Oppenheimer, again, someone, you know, from the Manhattan Project. And the reason he does that is, is that Oppenheimer was someone who not only understood the science, not only understood where it would go, but he had the power to move people. And Demis has that power, right? He has this vision and it's based on science, but he also has this ability to call people sort of into his world and get them motivated to work on these big ideas that he wants to push forward. And of course, he's one of the critical figures in Deep Mind, which I had an involvement with, which we'll come to later on. But that's a critical for the kind of role of Britain in this whole AI space is, is really that, you know, often in scientific areas, we don't have a big British name there. But in AI, we do through Deep Mind. You do. And then, of course, Hinton is British. And they are basically the two main characters in this book. There are so many other characters that kind of swirl around them. But these two primary threads run through these two British characters. I actually had a British actor, John Lee, narrate the book because of this. What's also interesting is they both end up inside this very large American company. And that's part of the story as well, that there's so much talent in this area in Britain. And Britain plays such an important role. But in some ways, that's overshadowed by this very large American company. So you've got, you know, Jeff Hinton, we might call him the kind of lifetime pioneer. We've got Demis Sabus, we might call him the visionary. Now, we have to have a woman and it's hard. Let's face it, Kate, it's hard to have a woman because what your book confirms, what we all know is this is in a very, very male-dominated world. But I have chosen Deborah Raji, who's not in the book that much, just a few pages, but she's significant, I think, because she appears in your book at the time at which what we're starting to see is the critique. I would characterize her as a character. She's the critic, in a sense. She starts to notice some problems with AI. So tell us a bit about Deborah, but also comment, Kate, on this kind of problem about the male domination of AI. You pinpoint another great moment, right? To me, that moment in the book is so powerful when Deb Raji arrives and others who work alongside her, like Timnit Gebru, who was at Stanford and went to Google, Margaret Mitchell, who ended up at Google and others. You, you have this, this story, which arcs over decades, that is driven mostly by white men. And that becomes crucial because this idea, the idea of a neural network which is going to drive so many of these technologies and starts to drive them in the 2010s, it literally learns its skills from data. So one way I like to describe this is you have a neural network, which is just a mathematical system, and it dates all the way back to the 50s, the idea of it. You feed thousands of, let's say, cat photos into this neural network, and it analyzes those photos and it looks for patterns in those photos, the patterns that define what a cat looks like. 
And in learning from that data, it learns to perform a particular skill. It learns to identify a cat. That's an idea that works not just with image recognition, but speech recognition. It's what drives Siri on your phone. That's why Siri can recognize what you say. But the problem here is that the people choosing the data to feed into these systems were largely white males, like myself. You know, if you're a white male, you're going to have a particular view of the world. You might be blind to the holes in your view of the world. You're going to choose data that fits that view. So what ends up happening is that the systems that are being built are in many ways biased against women, for example, or against people of color. And people like Deb, Deb was working in a startup in New York City. They're building this face recognition system and what they call a content moderation system, which is supposed to remove toxic content from, say, social media feeds. And she realizes that this bias problem is not only there, but it's a huge, huge issue. This technology at the time was already being deployed in the world. And she and others really you know, sounded the alarm that we need to think about these things. And this is something the industry is really struggling with. So I want to come back to some of these ethical questions in a second. But we've talked about three of these characters that feature in your book, many others as well. But let's explore some of the issues that run through the book. So the first one is what I think in policy we might describe as trying to distinguish between cycles and trends. Because over what, seven decades of this story of neural networks and AI, there have been these cycles when it's gone in and out of fashion. It, sometimes it's the whole idea of AI that goes in and out of fashion, and, but then it's how you get to AI that goes in and out of fashion. Neural networks, as the method for doing that, goes in and out of fashion. But yet, behind all these cycles, there is also a trend, and the trend is that People reach kind of roadblocks, and then these brilliant people that you talk about, determined people with investors often behind them, find a way around that roadblock. They reach a critical moment. There's a breakthrough, and then there's another breakthrough, and there's another breakthrough, and it keeps going. But I guess when all this is unfolding, often people don't distinguish cycles and trends. They think that because the investments moved out of AI, because the focus has moved out, the whole thing's over, it's all finished, because neural networks don't work immediately, they're, they're never going to work. And that's kind of one of the stories here, isn't it, Kate? It really is. And it's another reason I, I'm fascinated by Jeff Hinton. He embraced this idea of a neural network in 1971, when he was a graduate student at the University of Edinburgh. And at that moment, the idea was at its lowest ebb, it was at that moment that no one, almost no one, believed in the idea. And that's when he took hold of it. And you're right, over the decades, the idea would, you know, would kind of rise up in the estimation of some, but then fall back down. And none of that mattered to him. He saw value in the idea and continued to work on it. But you're right, there's a larger story there in that it's funny how history repeats itself, right? There was all this hype in the late 50s around this idea. And the hype builds up over the years. And then everyone looks around and they say, wait, 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 the technology doesn't do what people said it would do. And that's the moment when the funding drops out of an area like that and people stop working on it because they lose faith. And you reach that low point. And then 
you know, eventually people forget about what has happened over the previous years and they pump money back into the idea. Maybe there's a small gain and then the hype builds up again and the whole cycle starts all over. Those low points in the AI field, they call it an AI winter. And you see this time and again where all the hype will sort of die down and you reach this point where everyone is sure the technology is going nowhere. But then the cycle begins once again. And do you think if I asked you, Kate, to say what is the point at which the advocates of the neural network deep learning methodology kind of really win? I mean, many people would point to the famous game of Go against Lee Sedol in Korea. Demis came to speak at the RSA quite soon after that. Do you think winning that game in front of those millions of people watching, do you think that is the critical moment? Or is that just the one that we think about because it's highest profile? Was there actually another moment, which was the point at which the neural network advocates won? That was a key moment. And I was lucky enough to be there in Korea and see that. And the reason it was a key moment was not only for you know, technical reasons, but also the fact that people could understand it. You know, in Korea, the entire country was focused on that. And large parts of Asia were focused on it. You know, 60 million people in China, vast numbers of people in Japan. And you being in Seoul, you could feel the whole country kind of swaying back and forth as the match, this go match between a, a human and a machine swayed back and forth. Games are something that people can understand. And so that was the moment when the larger society realized what was going on. But there was another really key moment before that for the tech industry, and that was driven by Hinton. And that's in 2012 where the book begins, where he and two of his students show that a neural network can do image recognition. So recognize objects in photos like flowers or cars or people, they showed that that could work in a way that rivaled the way humans recognize objects like that. And certainly that was far more effective than any technology that came before. And that was the moment when Silicon Valley and the tech industry, the global tech industry, you know, this stretches all the way to China from that moment, realized what was happening and really bet big on this technology. Let's turn to another thing which seems to become a bit of a pattern, which is the ethical issues and the kind of faltering attempts of many of the big businesses in this sector to kind of get their ethical stance right. So I have to tell you, Kate, I've got you know a bit of skin in the game myself in the sense that I was recruited by Mustafa Suleiman, Mrs. Harvis's colleague in Deep Mind, a fantastic guy, Mustafa, a fantastic guy. He recruited me to be on the ethical board for Deep Mind Health. And I did this for a couple of years. And at that time, which I'm sure you remember, Mustafa was a very important figure because we were starting to see the reputational problems affecting big tech. And Mustafa is a kind of progressive guy, a very good communicator. Not all these guys are great communicators, but he's a great communicator. He was kind of the poster boy as somebody could go out and acknowledge these ethical challenges, acknowledge the need for change, but to reassure people that, you know, someone like him still felt that the technology was going in the right direction. Now, what happened for that ethical board on deep mind health is that we produced our second or third report. It caused a bit of embarrassment and we were shut down. And not only were we shut down, but as part of what was going on there, because I don't think that Google were terribly pleased with our report, DeepMind Health was brought into Google Health, and Mustafa Suleiman himself 
went to work in Google and, you know, Mustafa is a great figure and he will be a great figure, but he's been much more quiet really since then as, a, as somebody getting involved in these debates. And yet just the other day, I noticed the latest row at Facebook. What does it involve? Well, it involves members of the ethical committee who are getting sacked. So we've seen this again and again. We've seen big tech try to say that they take these ethical issues seriously, but when it gets sticky, they tend to give up on the ethics. You're exactly right. And this became, surprisingly, even to me, the second half of my book, right? When I when I first pitched the book to my publisher, you know, I had a great story around these characters that you're talking about, most notably Hinton and Hassabis. And I knew that there was a great narrative thread there, but it became far more interesting, you know, over the many months that I worked on the book because of that clash that you're talking about. Hinton and Hassabis are idealistic people. They have very firm beliefs about how their technology should be used. And you see this in the founding of DeepMind when they demanded that Google put these clauses in their contract that said the technology would not be used with the military, among other clauses that sought to really firmly define their personal ethics and make sure that these companies, this company that bought them, followed that. But what the second half of the book became was a real clash there where the aims of these companies, these are very large, very wealthy companies that are driven by the profit motive and other motives that often clash with these personal views of, of the people building the technology. And that became the real story. We see that not only at Google, not only at Facebook, which you mentioned, but so many other companies in so many different areas of technology where neural networks uh, are starting to work. It's something that no one expected, I think. I don't think Demis expected how this would play out or Jeff or so many other people who nurtured this technology over the decades and now find themselves working for these very large companies. And I have a kind of theory about why the companies get it so wrong. And it's been a pretty dramatic fall from grace for people like you know, Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, who's gone from being lauded to being a character that many people are deeply suspicious about. But, you know, the same thing has happened to Google as a brand, for example. And it feels to me, you know, partly this is just about their power and wealth, of course, but it's also, I think, that they've never really got politics because in a way, these are technocrats and the idiosyncratic nature of politics, the things that the public worries about and the way that politicians try and respond to public concerns, that's not something they've got much of an instinct for, these kinds of people, is it? I think you're right. And the industry as a whole came up at a time when people did laud them, right? You mentioned Zuckerberg in particular. The press as well lauded what they were doing and everything was painted in this one way. And I think they really came to see the world in that way, that they were only forces for good in some ways. And you're right, not seeing the way the world worked outside that insular place that is Silicon Valley or the tech industry. Now that these companies are so large, now that the technology they build are so pervasive, they're realizing how complicated the world around them is, how complicated journalism is, and how they're covered differently, but certainly the world of politics and how different that is from the world that they are used to. And this isn't an enormous part of your book, but what is fascinating also about these corporations is their own corporate culture. And, you know, I'm, I'm a great critic, really, of quite a lot of what 
Google and Facebook do. But to be fair to them, one of the reasons that one often hears about their wrongdoing is because they have a pretty lively internal discourse. People are encouraged. And some of the protests against Google, for example, getting involved in military activities came from their own staff who were allowed to express their concerns internally. That's very different from the way many organizations work. One of the companies that doesn't feature much in the book, and I'm interested as to why in a way, is Amazon. I have a a friend recently who joined Amazon at quite a senior level. And I mean, he's been completely blown away by the corporate culture, by the intensity of it. He said, it feels like he's joining a benign cult. You know, there are ways of doing things in Amazon and you have to go on really deep learning courses. He's had to learn to code, even though he's not going to be coding, in order that he can do his job supervising some people who are doing that. The corporate cultures are a fascinating part of this, aren't they? Absolutely. It's amazing to me how these giant public companies really have their own personalities. And because of those personalities, they respond to situations so differently. You take Amazon, they responded to this deep learning revolution very differently from these other players. The way that that Google responded, and certainly Facebook and others, was they really went after the stars of the field, the Hintons of the world. They literally threw millions of dollars at them. And there was this kind of arms race for talent in the area. And it was it was about having the, the technical know-how, but it was also about PR. You know, we have the big brains here. That was certainly the aim with, with those companies, but not Amazon. They are not as interested in that aspect of it. The way they think is, you know, after seeing the technology and after seeing it work, they want to find other ways of getting that into the company. They're not as interested in that kind of PR moment. They're interested, though, in acquiring people who can do the work and then imparting that to their workforce, right, through the types of programs that you're talking about. So they've certainly been a part of this, but they don't fit into my story in the same way because, you know, one is that they were a little bit later to the game. But also they went about it in a completely different way. And and while all these other companies are scrambling for the big names, they're looking to do this in other ways. Well, Kate, I could talk to you for hours, but let's finish off by asking the big question, which is still the big question. And that's about general artificial intelligence. So the possibility of machines that can, in some meaningful sense, think for themselves, which has always really been at the heart of our, you know, dystopian fears. And this is another thing which runs through the book. And it's a kind of two by two matrix, isn't it really? Because you've got on one side, those who think it's possible to have artificial general intelligence and those who don't. And then those who think it's okay to have it. And those who think it's, you know, the kind of Elon Musk of this world who say, well, it could be the end of the world. Where are you on that two by two matrix having spent so much time talking to these folks, Kay? Well, I really believe that my role, and this is certainly my role in writing the book, is to stand back and look at this rather than take a side. And I am certainly, I can tell you this, fascinated by how that works, that you do have people in the field who are incredibly intelligent, incredibly well-educated, you know, who are at the center of this technological revolution, who believe that AGI, as you called it, artificial general intelligence, a machine that can do anything the brain can do is around the corner, right? The best example is Demis. DeepMind's founding mission was to build something like that. 
But at the same time, you have equally intelligent, equally well-educated, equally important people who believe that that idea is bunk, right? They don't think it's around the corner. They think that such talk is ridiculous and misleading. What it's really about to me is it's about how ideas spread and how beliefs spread. The title of the chapter in my book that tackles this is called Religion, because I really think that's the best analogy for this belief in AGI. It is a belief. We don't know what will happen in the future. So we can't prove one way or another where this technology is going. And frankly, we're not quite sure how to get to that technology. Even the people who believe in it don't quite know how to get there. But their belief is so real. And it's amazing how that belief can spread from person to person. And you see this over the course of the book. You have people who do not believe at one stage. And then a few years later, after moving into a company like Google and seeing the technical power that's being applied to this and being surrounded by others in the field who do believe, they start to believe too. And you see this not just at one company, but at multiple companies. You know, there are two labs now, OpenAI is the other one, who say that their stated mission is to build AGI. And that is fascinating in and of itself. It's not about whether it will come to be, in my opinion. It's about the fact that they do believe that, even though they're not quite sure how to get there. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating question. And it seems to me, Kate, it's a it's a kind of quantitative, qualitative question, isn't it? That even though in your book you describe vividly particular moments, particular applications, which are game changers, nevertheless, it is ultimately an incremental story. It is a story of of something not quite working, then working a little bit better, and then people realizing, well, it only works with really fast processors and then needing lots of processors and then realizing it's more data. And it gradually, but so that is a kind of quantitative process of gradually accreting more data, more insight, and getting better and better and better in terms of the way in which this technology works. But AGI would be a qualitative change. It would be a moment when suddenly what the machine was doing went beyond that which had been put into it by human beings. And I I don't think in your book there are those qualitative moments. It's more kind of sweat and investment and hard work than a kind of eureka, isn't it? You're exactly right. And that's why I think it's it's essential to, to separate the AGI discussion from these other moments that have happened. And you're right, over the past 10 years, first we saw this idea of a neural network be applied to speech recognition and change speech recognition. Then it was applied to image recognition. It changed that. And that had so many effects, right? We were all building self-driving cars at the time. And that idea is essential to the self-driving car. You see robotics start to improve. Natural language understanding systems are really coming to the fore now. These are systems that can, in some ways, carry on a conversation. They can generate their own tweets and blog posts and news articles, and we're seeing that progress. There's been a a lot of gains in the area of the biological sciences. DeepMind is at the heart of this. All that continues to progress, and you can see the technology working in these relatively narrow areas. And that is completely different than AGI, right? Jeff Hinton, by the end of the book, he even questions whether that's something that we want. Do you want 
a robot that can not only perform surgery, but you know, recite baseball scores is the way he puts it, right? Do you need a system that does everything or do you just need systems that work in particular areas? Well, it's questions like that that flow from this wonderful book. So I encourage everybody to get hold of a copy of Genius Makers. And I, I have to say, Kate, one of the ways you grabbed me in this book is I got halfway through, and I, it's wonderfully written, it's fascinating, but I had a bit of a thing. I thought this, this is a bit a bit of a hagiography here. When am I going to see a bit of grit in the oyster? But of course, that's what unfolds in the second half of your book, which is one of the reasons it's such a satisfying read. So thank you for the book, and thank you, Kate, for joining me today. Thank you. It was fun. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen. 